Hello, everyone. Welcome back to the Far Out Wisdom Podcast. Before we begin, if you'd like to support my podcast, you could do so via PayPal and Venmo, where you can send any amount you wish, or you can become a $5 patron. Remember to share, love, and comment. I do all the recording, writing, editing, and scheduling all on my own. Donations or sharing the link to my podcast makes it possible for me to try to keep this ad-free as much as possible. If you would like to sponsor file, please contact me via email or on social media. So I have two of my favorite people on the planet in this episode. Some will probably smear them as Nazis because of their activism. I know. Um, I have April Rose and Samson Rachapi. Anyway, we're having lots of technical difficulties and you guys missed out on a lot of interesting conversation. Fortunately, we got an hour and a half worth of something. I wasn't really sure it was on my end or was it it was on Samson's end or it was just a mess and it was just we were having a conversation for two hours. I mean they were and I was trying to figure out what was going on. Just to give you an idea what we're talking about, we started the conversation with the pros and cons of Andrew Andrew Yang's UBI, which led to us talking about the mice utopia experience, the American Revolution in relation to Hong Kong fight for freedom, and of course what we all believe in politically. If you listen to the discussion that we were having, all three of us have different ideas of what we value. I promise I will get them onto this podcast again individually to break down what they both value and squeeze out the wisdom from the both of them the best best that I can. Enjoy. about the American Revolution. You guys want a part two? You guys just want to fight. That's all you guys want to do. <laughs> I really, I, I don't, don't want to fight. Wanna, I really don't want to fight. We don't want to fight with each other. <laughs> well, so they were, they were having a conversation about the American Revolution. And coming from me, I am a person who grew up with, you know, like my, the Cambodian Civil War, and then I was brought to the United States, not brought to the United States, but I was born in the United States and they talk, the American Revolution uh, started and then the Civil War during the 1800s. So uh, I kind of don't want a civil war, but that's just what we're seeing right now. Um, a lot of, you know, the uh, tech censorship. And I know a lot of people are going to say, well, I don't believe in tech censorship. Uh, yes, it's happening. It is, it's, it's happening to regular people like myself. I get, you know, get called, you know, Nazi, white supremacist, white nationalist agent, and things like that. I'm tired of it, to be honest with you guys. You know, especially on Twitter. You know, uh, I think we're going to talk about doxing just for a little bit. Um, I'm not on Twitter, but uh, Samson can add to that about doxing. And uh, it, I feel like one end is getting the stick more than the other. And a lot of people don't believe me, uh, especially especially my left wing friends, which is fine. I know, but because it's not happening to you, it's not your team that's getting attacked. And so as a person who love the, you know, 
the American, like I, I have always been so fascinated with, you know, the American Revolution. And, uh, you know, when the founding fathers and the 13 colonists, they said, fuck you to, you know, the Great Britain, right? And so I have always been fascinated with the American history and things like that. And I'm sorry, it's the right and the left. They have to fight the, the battle of ideas. And I feel like Twitter is taking it upon themselves to say, no, the right wing people, you guys are all fascists, you know, you guys are all white nationalists, you know, white supremacists and Nazis. And I'm tired of it because, you know, these two that I'm talking to right at the moment, very smart individuals, and they're getting the hit, especially Samson. And he's going to tell you guys about that. But it's just like, I'm so tired of it. I, I'm, I'm so sick of it. I'm, I'm sick of the beatings. I'm sick of the doxing. I'm sick of, you know, not being able to have a conversation. This is why I started a podcast in the first place, so we can explain ourselves. So this is why I invite these two so they can kind of, you know, tell you guys a little bit about their ideas. I mean, they're, they're pro-freedom, right? They're not fascists at all. So you guys. I think it's back. really, I think it's really interesting that <clears throat> podcasting has become what I call the new AM radio. <laughs> It's been kind of um, fun to watch happen because I grew up with the AM radio revolution in the background that my father was into um, because it got to a point where leftists kind of started to dominate news on the TV and to point news in the newspapers. It wasn't um, like the way that you see it now, but it was subtle, but it, it had started to the point where people who were following did notice it. So by sometime around the 80s, um, the other voices, you could say, whether they were, you know, you might call them right wing, you might just call them like an alternate point of view or some pieces of truth that weren't always getting reported were coming out on AM radio. Um, so I grew up with that. There's someone, um, Samson probably knows about Howie Carr that I heard all the time growing up um, who had like his own little like talk channel. And he would talk about all kinds of things that weren't really being discussed properly in the news. Um, and he also outed a lot of the local corrupt politicians around Boston. It got to the point where Whitey Bulger almost had him assassinated because he was so good at it. <laughs> mm-hmm. But now, so, okay. So now it's just gotten to this point with it, with this communist agenda, you could call it. Sometimes I don't like saying leftist, left-wing liberal, because I think that those words should mean something else. They're supposed to mean people who are forward-thinking in a certain way, and that's what it should mean. It's been co-opted by something else. So this whole Marxist-communist thing has gone so far that now we're using the internet, and now now everybody has a podcast. Podcasts are huge now because there's a lot of people like us. So, I mean, I find that kind of encouraging. You know, so many people want to podcast because so many people feel how we feel. Yeah, I agree with that, too. I don't like using I don't like interchanging lefts and and liberals with communists and so and Marxists, because I also agree that they're not the same thing. Um, The whole left right thing bothers me so much because when we talk about values, when we talk about the American way, it really shouldn't be left. It really shouldn't be right. It should be about just, like I said, values, the Constitution, the Bill of Rights. Those apply to no matter no matter who you are. They're universal things that that um, everyone is afforded these rights. And you know, you have the right to speak. You have the right to advocate for what you believe. You have the right to be like, you know, I I. I 
I think communism is a better way. I, I don't I don't think that. But you have the right to to speak that and to advocate for that. And when I say, you know, I'm an I, I believe in American values, it shouldn't be a controversial thing. It shouldn't be like, oh well, you're far right because mm-hmm. you believe you believe a certain thing when it comes to individual rights. Um, and, and so, yeah, I, I, what you said really resonates with me, April. I don't think it should be a, um, a left. A, a, we shouldn't be calling what's happening in this country um, a liberal thing or a leftist thing because it's so much deeper than that. It's, it's about eroding everything that we hold dear in the United States and, and implementing something completely different that not even liberals want. They don't understand it, I don't think. Um, and it's, it's very, it's Boone can talk about this. Like she can't, her family is from a country that suffered under terrible communist ideology. Like we have this, you've met Bao Chow at our rallies, right? April. Yes. She is awesome. She, but I've seen her leave the stage with tears coming out of her eyes after talking about how great the system we have is here, where her family came from. And the dangers that we are suffering from, from we might be losing what we have just because of, um, because of the promise of equality and, and something else, you know, communism comes in under the guise of equality and, you know, leveling the playing field. But it, once it's here, it's, it's something completely opposite of what they advocate for. Right, right. You know, and it's heartbreaking because we see it playing out before our eyes, but it's like we could shout until we're blue in the face about how bad it is and nobody's going to listen to us. They're going to they don't have an argument. So they call us white supremacists. They call us Nazis and they call us whatever homophobes, like everything that that can shut down conversation and make people not want to associate with us is what we get called. Mm-hmm. I, don't know. I don't mean to go on and on and on about mm-hmm. it, but it, no, it you're right, me. and it's it's fascinating and it's horrifying um, because I'm interested to see how it's going to play out because I think, like we were talking about earlier, a lot of things about it will correct itself. Um, I think a lot of younger people are already aware of it and they're getting tired of it. Um, I don't. I think a lot of them are still too young to fully have agency with it and speak up, but I think it, that's already starting to happen. Um, It'll be interesting to see how people can just sort of, I don't know, you know, if they're going to, if they're going to step up and correct it just out of, just out of, just out of being annoyed, you know, because most of America isn't like this. Most of America has to just get up and go to work and, you know, they live their lives. They have families. They're busy. They don't have time for this nonsense. And in a way that's bad because that's when radicals are able to step in and make policy. But in a way it's good because I think that their patience with it is going to be very short. (laughs) I firmly believe that good Americans who, like you said, they work, they go to school, they provide for their families and they watch this stuff play out on the news. um, At some point, the silent majority is going to wake up and they're going to, they're going to toss out all these, uh, all the Marxists and all the communists and all the radicals who are trying to teach their children bad things in schools. Um, but what, what they really need is, and I'm not trying to compliment ourselves. I'm not trying to like blow smoke up our asses or anything, but we're on the leading edge of it, of what's going on in Boston. And, you know, they, they need good leadership to stand up and take a bunch of abuse in order for them to be like, we're not going to put up with this anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I'm okay with being that role 
Um, I'm not saying it's me personally. It's it's me and a group of um, it's a team of people who are putting themselves out there, including you, April, and you, Boone, out there on the West Coast. But um, we're gonna have to take a bunch of hits before people wake up and see what's going on. Hopefully, nobody really gets too harmed in the process. But unfortunately, it it may take a martyr or two for people to to be like, I'm not gonna put up with it. Mm-hmm. And I hope that when when the people do wake up, it's not going to be with guns. It's going to be with it's going to be an intellectual revolution. But we have so many damn guns in this country that like it, it might get it might get nasty. It could. Um, the other factor is if we have enough people in office, like what Trump has been doing and trying to do, where he's fixing the economy enough that the average person is doing a little bit better again. Um, Obviously, the coronavirus has been kind of like a curveball on that. Um, I think that we will recover pretty quickly from it personally. Um, but I think that people forget about that. You know, we we were in a ditch for so long economically, and that really affects stuff. And when people are taking an economic hit, sometimes they, they focus on all the, you know, these ideas of social justice and, and trying to point the finger and and have more infighting because they're just, they're not trustworthy. They're not trusting of each other. They're very disenfranchised. But I think that if we're able to pick things up financially for a little bit, that may help because then people are going to be like, they're going to feel good again. That's actually going to make them feel empowered because feminism doesn't make you feel empowered. You know, making over $55,000 a year makes you feel empowered. (laughs) And um, the more people experience that and like, younger people and younger adults kind of get that back they're also going to be like no i have something to fight for and like i'm not interested in all this 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 radical leftist stuff you know so i I think that may help us too i like trump but there are criticisms of him that are very valid he campaigned on draining the swamp and you know he surrounded himself with the swamp one of the things he said he was going to do was reduce or eliminate the national debt. And we've ballooned it, you know, and I think that all this stuff is bad for us. Yeah. We, we have families who are making more money, but I really think that a lot of that is due to economic stimulus that's being directly added to our national debt. And that's just a way of kicking the can down the road. And he campaigned on all of the opposite of that. So Mm -hmm. I'm a fan. I, I do like Trump. Um, but he's not, he's not, he's not holding up his end of the bargain. And well, he's not systemically changing it from the ground up. I understand that he's, he's not doing that. I think that he's getting compared to Reagan a lot, which I understand. And he's doing a lot of the good things that Reagan did, but he's doing the, you could call it problematic. That It's similar with like a lot of what Reagan did was kind of put a bandaid on it or kick it down the road. Um, like you just said. I think a, I think a big thing that helped people, I know it helped me, was when how he got rid of that huge corporate tax. Getting rid of that was like huge. And people have no idea <laughs> how helpful that was. The people who are very, you know, that, you know, sort of socialist damn the man thinking, they, they just can't fathom it. They're like, but they have so much money, they should pay. And I'm like, yeah, I get it. They should pay. I totally get it. But what happens in reality, and I know because I was a victim of it from 2009, I, 
I lost my better job. I fell into a crappy retail job because it was all I could get. And I was stuck in it for several years. And because these companies, these mega giants and these mega corps, they were paying so much out. Every dollar they got in, they were paying almost half of it back out in taxes. Um, It just hurt us. It didn't hurt them. They're like, okay, we have to pay more taxes. We're just not going to give raises. We're just going to have a lower starting wage. We're just going to break all these jobs apart into part-time jobs. We're just going to find ways to screw people out of their benefits. We're just going to do, you know, play all these nasty tricks on the work. It just screws the worker. Um, So that was a really huge help. When he took away that tax, it, it did change a lot. Now, I know over time that's also problematic because you have these, you know, these people and these entities that already have so much wealth. And by not taking that chunk of tax from them every year, you're kind of just creating an even bigger class divide. So that is a problem. What you do short term is you get those people who are lower middle class, you kind of open the door for them to be able to jump up to middle or upper middle class and become more affluent. So they at least have a shot at that. They have a window of time to kind of get there. But over time, you do make a bigger class divide. So I mean, I, you know, I I get what you're saying, because he's, you know, I don't really know. I mean, you talk about about it like a revolution, but it's hard to completely economically restructure what we're doing in a way that is safe. <laughs> that well, I mean, smoothly one of my barometers, <laughs> one of my barometers as a country is like, who are we bombing? Who are we sending our young men and women off to go fight and and what countries are they going to go like die in? You know, and some of this like I, I wouldn't be. I wouldn't care about our national debt and how we print money and do all these things if it, there didn't seem to be a correlation with um, the countries we go to war with and our debt, right? If we could do this stuff sustainably without having to go and like kill people and be killed to to continue our system, I'd be okay with it. Um, there are some good things to talk about with Trump, like the unification of North North and South Korea, the fact that you know, you have these leaders from North Korea crossing into South Korea and vice versa without them killing each other. I mean, that that's unheard of my entire life. That's that's history making, you know, um, the fact that like and I don't want to get into a Hillary versus Trump thing, but Hillary was advocating for a no fly zone over Syria during the campaign that might have put us in a, in a f- fight with Russia over Syria, which is a place that we really don't belong in. You know, my understanding is, is we've reduced our, our presence in some of these foreign countries. Um, so there, there are good things to compliment Trump for. And, and that's really, really like, who, that's what I care about is like, who are we fighting? Who are we going to like send our young people to go and fight and die um, over? Cause I, I don't think our wars are virtuous anymore. It's not like we're fighting Nazis in, in World War II Germany and Europe and stuff. It's like we're kind of battling over access to resources. And if we really had a superior system, then it should stand on its own without having to use force. Um, and I think Trump is kind of on the right side of that. You know, he's on the correct side of that. But again, I, I don't think it's sustainable. I think at some point it's all going to come to a head. My father... He's a very smart guy. He's an old man now, but he's like, yeah, you know, Trump, Trump is the king of declaring bankruptcy. And that might be what we need as a country as, at some point. You know, we might have to actually be like, listen, we need to restructure our, our financial system in a fundamental way that's sustainable. And if anybody can do it, it'll be President Trump. 
Sure. Um, I'm t this isn't something that I can prove, so I don't know how good it is bringing it up, but I have, you know, my people I talk to um, <clears throat> who, you know, over the years usually turn out to be right from, you know, the source that it is. But I'm told that, you know, our debt isn't actually what we think it is, that it's, it's periodically paid down. Now, it's not totally paid off. Obviously, that's impossible. I'm told that um, there's exclusive trading platforms that people kind of generate these blocks of money and just pay down our debt. But it doesn't really, we never hear about that. But it kind of makes sense when you think about it. Um, and this is getting kind of conspiracy theory, but it does kind of make sense if you can really look back. I don't know if you remember over 10 years ago when there was talk that the U.S. dollar, the value of the U.S. dollar was so low there was talk about who was going to be in the new world currency, like if it was going to be Russia, if it was going to be China, and it was this huge deal. And then all of a sudden, and you know, the, the whole point was that, you know, America has too much debt. We printed too much money. We have money sitting overseas, like IOUs that we, we don't, we can't even keep track of our money. And then that kind of just all just went away. <laughs> Everyone just kind of stopped talking about that. Um, you know, and I'm told that's because our debt actually does get lowered um, periodically, not constantly, but they are actually manipulating the debt more than we know about. But um, I agree with your overall thinking, though. Um, well, one of the things that I wanted to study, that's why I picked like economics as one of my majors, was I wanted to know how these economics people with PhDs can look you straight in the face and be like, this is sustainable. Like this is not a bad thing for us to do printing all this money. And I still haven't really received an, a good satisfactory answer. You know, it's still controversial. You mentioned reserve currencies. And um, one of the other things is the petrodollar. Um, I, my argument is one of the only reasons why we can print money, like why can't Venezuela do what we do? You know, why is it that these other countries can't produce money out of thin air and just buy perfectly good resources and food in exchange for their money? And it's because we've created contracts that obligate other countries to accept our currency in exchange for whatever it is that they do. So are you familiar with how a reserve currency works? Like what that means? I'll, I'll just explain it real quick. Um, a reserve currency means... Instead of like, let's say South Korea wants to buy a whole bunch of stuff um, off of another country. Um, South Korea is a pretty stable currency, but, you know, the receiving country might not want to take their currency. They want something more stable, something that's not going to fluctuate day by day. So that's why countries have reserve currencies. And that's like the, the Japanese yen, the U.S. dollar and the euro; those are reserve currencies. So when you're when you're some random country selling goods on the world market, you accept a reserve currency because you know that the value of that currency is going to be the same or relatively the same between now and tomorrow and next week and next year. Um, the petrodollar system, which was created under Nixon, and um, it basically means that OPEC countries, the countries that sell oil on the world market, they're obligated to accept the United States dollar in exchange for oil. Well, my argument is, and this isn't just my argument, a lot of people believe this, the reason why we can pr print money in excess of what we need to use is because oil producing countries 
and all these countries around the world use our dollar in these international transactions. So because we have this privilege of all these countries using our dollar, we have the privilege of printing above and beyond what is needed for our everyday transactions. Sure. Sure. The, yep. the belief system is if those contracts go away, then so does our spending power. And that's why we're willing to use military in, in other countries when that system seems to be somewhat threatened, which Iraq did um, in the year 2000, which Gaddafi did in Libya. Oh, absolutely. Um, and we, oh, you know, we totally took Gaddafi out. We, we didn't want to lose the petrodollar. We use force um, to enforce yeah. that system. And that's yep. the type of stuff that I say is immoral. That's like if we had such a superior system financially, then like I said, it should stand on its own. It should be able to withstand these countries trying to use, trying to create alternatives. But it should. I mean, it's getting, and I get what you're saying, but I think it's getting philosophical. There's a lot of things that should. I don't know if we're going to, I mean, I don't know if we can come up with something that good that everything, that it, it will just work and we'll never have to use any kind of coercion. I think even if we had a perfect system, there would just be some power hungry person that wanted to step outside of it and do something else. And, you know, we would, we would do something weird to be on them. Um, We've become that power hun- hungry person though. Yeah, we That's have, we have it, in the irony, the irony we have, um, because we, in some cases we do, you know, we kind of get into that you know, we, we take, we take over people economically. It's like, we've kind of set up a game that you can only play our game. Now you can't start other games. And, you know, it's never been that way before in world history. We had, you know, Rome, we had places that were very successful and had a very far reach, but it wasn't so global that like you could only play Rome's game entirely. Um, We are kind of turning into that, which is like a little scary. I just, but at the same time, I, I'm not really sure that I can think of a way to correct it. I just might not be smart enough, but I think about it in terms of human nature. And unfortunately we always, humans do kind of need conflict. Um, have you heard of the mouse utopia experiment? Yep. That's, it's interesting, but you might as well explain it for those who haven't. So it it was an experiment with uh, mice and with rats where they gave them the perfect condition to just have everything they wanted. They had all the food they wanted, all the water they, they needed. Everything was there all the time. They were able to mate whenever they wanted, um, you know, whatever kind of treats or things that they liked to eat. Everything was always there, and they were very comfortable. And um, they ended up kind of self-destructing. They just started acting strange. They lost interest in having sex with each other and reproducing Um, They started, supposedly they started chewing on themselves, like literally becoming self-destructive. And the whole thing was just bad. And the idea is that we're wired to need a certain type of struggle to keep us united. Now, we're usually united against each other to some degree, like countries being united against each other. We don't really want this kind of tribalism like that we have in the U.S. where they keep trying to break us apart into tribes and they exploit that instinct but I don't really know what we can do to it's almost like trying to get rid of that instinct to kind of always have something like an adversary or something that you need to meddle with maybe that's what's good about trying to go to Mars and colonize planets even though it sounds kind of crazy it's also like 
I don't really know what's left. Like, <laughs> what else do we have left to do? <laughs> we could maybe try to colonize Antarctica, go underground. I don't know. I, I just feel like people need something to do. They need another frontier. We're not really designed to not have something new to discover and struggle for and make and develop. And we don't have that right now. You could call it boredom. You could call it a sort of boredom that it becomes self-destructive. I mean, we like, okay, for example, you know, the U.S. is a very, very successful country. Um, and we have a really high suicide rate here. That Supposedly, the suicide rate goes up the more peaceable and easygoing life is. That we just, there's something in us. I mean, it sounds sadistic, and I don't mean it like we're sadistic. But we do need more of a struggle than what we have. We've, al we've almost gotten too good at what we do. We've made society so successful that we've taken away the interaction that a human being needs to give their life purpose and meaning. And we've even, I've, I've read a book about it once that went into the neuroscience of it, that we actually need that kind of negative interaction with the world too, that the outside wor world physically and with dealing with other people and challenging ourselves, we kind of need even those negative interactions that creates chemicals in our brain. It actually releases dopamine that keeps us interested in life and keeps us going. And when you take that struggle away and make things too comfortable, we actually become very sick. So, you know, the, I, I, don't, I, don't, I don't know what the solution is right now because, I mean, you know, Samson's making a good point where we're just, we just keep expanding and we just want to like dominate everybody now, but we don't know what else to do with ourselves. <laughs> what, what, do I think, do? what do we do? I think competition benefits everyone. It benefits the consumer because, you know, lower, when you have two companies that are competing with each other to make you spend your money at their location, then you end up with a better product for less money, Right. Um, but when you have a monopoly where there's no competition whatsoever, that company, for example, can do whatever the hell they want. They can give you a bad product. They can charge too much money for it. And th that's what I think we need at a global level when it comes to, like, for example, our currency situation that I was talking to you about. Instead of letting uh, – instead of going to war with c countries that challenge our financial monopoly that we have on the world – what we need to do is we need to be more competitive on a financial level. And I think that that's why we see um, China and Russia becoming such a boogeyman to us because they're nuclear armed, nuclear powered countries, and they're challenging us on this very high level financial um they're challenging us financially at a very high level. We can't do what they did, what we did to Iraq and and Libya to, to China right. and Russia. So instead of, um, you know, I think that's one of the reasons why we see so much propaganda coming out um, against Russia and against China, because at some point our dear leaders may decide that we need to go to war with them in order to continue our, our financial paradigm. My belief system is we need to restructure it. And I don't mean to go back to this again, but I think we need to become more sustainable we probably need to tighten our belts a little bit. Like you said, with those mice, we've become too too fat, too comfortable with having everything handed to us. And we need to become more competitive, whatever that means. I don't know what it necessarily means either. But I also don't see our leadership trying to address this. They're, they tell us that 
everything is good, everything is cool, and that this is sustainable while we continue the status quo that appears to be bringing us to a head with these these um, adversaries that I don't really think are necessarily adversaries. They just want to compete with us. Sure, they want sure. to, they want a slice of that pie. Sure, sure. We don't um, want to give it to them. I kind of like what Andrew Yang is saying about some of that. Um, <clears throat> like what? And I've been learning. Well, I've been learning. So I'm, I mean, my full opinion about him still isn't completely formed yet. So bear with me. But I'm also learning more about what it means to be in an innovation system, an innovation economic system, which we really don't have enough of here. I think that's a big part of the problem. And I think some of the countries that we get concerned about are have been moving in that direction, even some smaller countries, where they're just doing a lot better of putting their money and resources into technology in a way that actually works. You know, not like this theoretical thing like Obama saying, yeah, I'm going to give money to these green companies and we're going to have solar powered cars. It's going to be great. And then, you know. They, the government just doesn't handle it the right way. And then they just take the money and that, you know, I don't mean like that. I mean, when it actually works, um, you could argue Trump is doing a little bit of this because in his way, because lately when we've had problems, he tries to solve it by privatizing it. He takes the government out of it, but he is the government, right? So he's taking government money and he's giving it to private companies to solve problems or to meet a need more efficiently. So for example, you know, the news made a big deal when he took the military out of Syria, but he actually sent contractors in there. Um, you know, the news made a big deal about Space Force, right? And they made fun of him for it. But actually, he was he was paying, you know, private companies to build satellites because now we're in a satellite war. Um, it's, it's something that we're trying to do to keep up with other countries that are being more innovation focused and more technology focused. So he's kind of doing it in his way. He just quickly funnels money and privatizes things. I think that we have to look at that because we're really not doing enough of that. We're kind of like, oh, we, I don't know. I, I guess we kind of don't really have enough of a vision anymore. Everybody has a different one. People think of it. Some people have the idea of the American laborer. They're like, we got to bring trades back here. We got to bring manufacturing. It's like, yeah, we can do that and that'll help. But we, we got to do a lot more than that now. And as far as people improving quality of life, because I don't think we're ever going to stop asking that question. And if it's misdirected, it eats itself. And that's like what the left is doing, because life is so good now that they have time to sit there and wonder, like, you know, was there some type of, you know, like unconscious racism in the way you offered me a cup of coffee? Like that is just a symptom of an incredible, like a society that has become so comfortable that it doesn't know what to do with itself anymore. It's like looking for things, <laughs> looking for some little bit of discomfort somewhere that it can correct, right? So you have to channel that into a better place. And really the only place at this point in history with, with humans and us living together and what we're doing in the U.S. and how much effort we've put into giving people equality of opportunity, really I think all we have left is technology in order to improve our life because Population's high. It's going to keep growing. We need things to keep a lot of access to clean water and food and electricity. We have to get those things. We have to get more of those things. And they have to be adequate quality, but they also have to be easy, cheap, affordable, accessible to everybody. We don't want the next wars to be fought over water because that might start happening too. So, you know, I think that we're not looking at that enough. 
I think people like Andrew Yang are kind of looking at that. I'm not saying I agree with absolutely everything he says, but I think he kind of has that idea. Um, I'm curious what he'll be doing in not this election, but the next election. Cause I think, you know, it's probably just going to be Trump and I'm fine with that, but I'd like to think he's going to run again. And I think he didn't get a lot of airtime because the DNC is so corrupt. Um, you know, I'd like, to, I'd like to think that there'll actually be some traction around him. I think Bernie Sanders is just controlled opposition. I think the DNC is like, here you go, just distract them <laughs> so they don't go looking for better people. <laughs> um, I think Andrew Yang could be something, you know, I, th- I think he might correct some of the stuff that we're talking about. I think he might, he might have answers. He's trying to, he's trying to come up with the answers. Some of them are very complex in the average person might not follow them very well, which might not be good for a presidential run. But, um, but yeah, yeah, that's my Andrew Yang talk. <laughs> I think, uh, I, I was just going to say, I think we're in a state in this country where the media, the corporate um, giants and the government are all in collusion with each other. And anyone who's a legitimate threat to the status quo, then, you know, I, I, don't necessarily like Andrew Yang, but I do. He, I don't think he's part of the status quo. Mm-hmm. Um, anybody who is a legitimate threat to that status quo is not going to get airtime in the media. Um, and so, while I, I hold your optimism that maybe we have something good coming down the pike, um, I, I don't know if they're going to succeed until we can address some of these underlying issues we have here in the states. And the main argument that he has is UBI, and that's universal base, basic income. And um, I got into like a discussion with somebody that was was pro Andrew Yang, and the 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 thing with discourse nowadays is all tribalistic. You're either right or left, and the people mm-hmm. that's right in the middle, uh, that includes me, April and Samson, we get you know thrown everywhere. I just want I just want solution, and this is where I kind of. Uh, start to like Andrew Yang at the fact that he saw things a little bit more different. Um, as human beings, I think we should be doing something a lot better than what we're we're at right now. And when it comes to UBI, um, you guys, you know, can interject if you guys want to. But um, the experimentation that's done in Finland, they did the same thing. Uh, they did an experiment, a little tiny experiment of UBI. They gave you know people like five hundred dollars a month or something in U.S. dollar, uh, but the employment rate was still low. It, it did absolutely nothing. We did something some, something along the lines in Stockton, California, and a lot of people, they spent their money on food and clothing. Okay. So the thing with me that I have problem with the modern day left is that they don't see that the problems that problems that they're creating is actually themselves. I live in California. The, the state is falling apart. We have a lot. We have the highest, you know, homeless population problem. We have, you know, everybody's leaving. Uh, California because it's really bad for business because of the fact that um, we have a lot of regulations that that's in here in California. I mean, sure, we have like, you know, I, I don't know. I think we're fourth in the economy, but I'm not really sure. But I think we're we're too arrogant. Th- that's what I see. Whereas with Yang, he saw he saw that the issue that we're having like with poverty. I'm so tired of the same thing over and over again. I mean, me. All, us three were in the same age. I mean, we always hear about poverty. We always hear about the minorities, marginalized, mm-hmm. blah, 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 right? But nothing gets done. It's the same shit over and over again. And I think with Yang, he kind of brought that onto the plate. And that's how ideas start to to get born, when you start to to plant it um, onto other people. So do I believe it's like a socialism thing? Absolutely. I don't think so. 
with UBI. I don't know what you guys think about UBI. You know, so somebody I respect is in support of his idea of UBI. So I have to look into it. It's inspiring me to look into it more to really yep. um, fully get to my own my own opinion about it. Um, but you know what I'm hearing from people that I, I usually respect is they're just kind of looking at the, like, you know, his, his idea for UBI and the way he's going to come up with it and taking it off like a percentage off of tech companies and things like that. They're really, it makes too much sense. Like there really aren't many other solutions that can solve for it now with the fact that factoring in everything, I don't want to factor every single thing I already mentioned in the fact that to a point technology will take away some jobs to a point and the population is growing and we're never going to totally have, you know, manufacturing and labors the way that we used to. And when you factor in everything going on, it's, it's such a sensible solution. It would be tiered so that you would fall off of it. Like you would gradually come off of it until you make a certain amount and then you like do not get it at all anymore. But I can't really reconcile the fact that it's, (laughs) it opens a door if you if you vote in that policy or vote in someone who's going to bring in that policy, you've opened a door now that you're everybody is completely a ward of the government now or a big portion of the population. And the population knows if they ever fall below that certain amount, the income is there. But you're talking about people. I think it starts to taper off when you get to about 60 grand a year, the UBI, and it'll keep tapering off till you make like it's like over 100. It might be 120,000 a year. It completely goes to zero. Right. So that's a lot of people, you know, most people are not going to be making 120,000. I think the average person, the average income right now is around 55K a year for the average American. So most people are still going to, are going to be getting this UBI. So what that means is once you put that in and it's instituted, that type of politician will never get voted out again because people are used to that money. I mean, that's what they do. That's what the Democrats are trying to do with welfare and all that stuff. And you've actually, we've seen this in um, some European countries where they become fascist. They put people, they give people a sort of UBI. They give them, they send them everybody checks every month. Once you do that and they just get it, it's not like welfare, like, oh, okay, you qualify for this. You qualify for unemployment because you don't have a job. They just give it to you. And once they start doing that, they will get reelected their entire lives. And if not them, the same type of person who's pushing the same policies and maybe has this, you know, you're eventually going to get someone who is a very um, authoritative type of person, right? So that's my concern point of UBI that I can't really reconcile, but a lot of things about it do sound good. So I'm not a fan. And it's not that I don't want people to have money or be to be able to get out of poverty or be to be able to afford things. It's it comes back down to the fundamental issue I was talking about earlier. These politicians, every single time they advocate for the government to do something for the people, they talk about how they're going to pay for it. And it never ends up balancing the way that they they wanted to. So he says he's going to go after the tech companies. I don't know that much about it to be able to speak on it. Bernie says that he has a way of paying for Medicare for all, and they run the math and they say it's going to cost this much. And then the reality of it is anything the government does is bloated and over. it costs too much. They are inefficient at doing so, and it ends up costing so much more money that it gets added to our national debt. And so instead of it being funded or financed by however it is they say that they're going to finance it, they end up just printing this money out of thin air and distributing it to however it is that they are going to distribute it. And it it adds 
more to this problem of it's like I think of warfare in terms of supply and demand. The more that we abuse our financial system, the, we, we create more of a demand for overseas war. And so if we have a way of really being financially sufficient in, in providing stuff like universal basic income or Medicare for all or whatever it is, I wouldn't be against it. If I wouldn't be against everyone having access to this stuff, but we really need to be sure we have a sustainable way of providing it. And I, I just have lost so much faith in our government that I, I don't foresee that ever happening. Yeah, no. it's yeah, it's both very good, strong arguments against UBI. Now, we're not against, you know, ending poverty or thinking about marginalized groups or minorities or anything like that. Every time we we question UBI, we get called names and stuff. That that's what I'm talking about. Having conversations like this or discussion like this to kind of break it down to kind of get an understanding. That's the point of it. And I'm sorry if you guys are leftists that's listening to this podcast, but please economics 101 please guys educate yourself on that and it really helps and um, McCall Jones we just had a podcast episode where we did talk about economics and he did make a good argument about it and you know the the idea that's what what Pol Pot and stuff was trying to do and it didn't end well and you know Stalin did it and it didn't end well so um you just talking about like the 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 mice utopia um, that experimentation was pretty messed up. Um, I did kind of look at it when April was talking about it. Um, the, the funny thing was they talk about pansexual mice. I did not know that that can happen, but that was fascinating. Yeah. I did not I know that. I wasn't going to go there, but yeah, they became pansexual <laughs> or homosexual. Like they just became yeah. sexual bending and that's kind of what right. we're doing now, which yeah. is just like, it's, it's a symptom of how successful we are. And it's like, we talk about, and look, like I've dated women, I've dated men. Like I don't. Mm-hmm. Obviously, like, I'm not someone who has a horse in the race to be like, oh, yeah, being straight is better. But yeah, it's it's really to the point that, like, we're only allowed to indulge any homosexuality that we might have inside of us because society is so successful now. Because up until the past hundred years, being homosexual meant you weren't making babies. And mm-hmm. that might screw things up for everybody else. <laughs> everybody had to make yeah, babies. It-, <laughs> it was really all it was. It was like... You had 10 kids and half of them survived, maybe, you know, and and there weren't as many people in general. So you really had to do that. That was what it wasn't so much to be narrow minded. It was just it was more of a survival thing for people. And now we have so many people and we're so successful. We have the luxury of allowing homosexual people to live as homosexuals, where it's being stated as like, oh, it's just like a basic human right. And it's like, well, yeah, like they're people and this is how they feel. And I get that. but. It's really, it's because we were so rigid about being heterosexual that we got here today. <laughs> yeah. And this <laughs> happened in urban, yeah, this is an urban environment that uh, the experimentation, uh, it, that was done. Um, and you guys can watch the documentary, which I'm going to link down below. Uh, I found it. That was really interesting. That's going to break it down for you guys. When I talk about pansexuality, um, it did talk about male rats that was, um, it, they weren't alphas or they weren't betas they were like omega they're like right in the middle they were protecting the 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 female rats but they didn't have sex with the female rats they always wanted to have sex with the alpha rats um and then the alpha rats became very aggressive 
um, because of the um, the stress level that they have. Um, and this is what happens when uh, you, you put a lot of people together. A lot of people kind of, um, they rejected that experimentation. Some people kind of went for that experimentation. But as a person who grew up in, you know, tight environment, I kind of understand that particular um, situation. I'm not saying we're rats, but um, as when, when my parents came from Cambodia, um, it was really close, you know, um, living in the ghetto. So everybody was in everybody's space. And so that created a lot of tension. Um, and so this is what kind of people were talking about UBI was trying to like solve, I guess. But um, the, the thing that makes me question UBI is that are you guys saying that money brings you guys happiness or, you know, that's the Stockton experimentation. Everybody felt happy. Um, the modern day left, um, I'm talking about the, the, the regressive left. That's who I'm talking about. I'm, talk I'm not talking about the liberals. They think about in terms of feelings. You can't base an economic system on feelings. It just doesn't work that way. All right. If it. If it it doesn't care. And this is why I think, in my opinion, in my theory, is that a lot of people don't like Trump is because of the fact that he's a businessman. So he operates on logic. Right. And kind of, they kind of have to. So maybe that's why they don't like him. I don't know. So but um, I, I'm, I'm looking at UBI and stuff like that, trying to figure out. And I'm a person who grew up in poverty all my life. So, but these are the questions that I have. And then I get accused of not caring for the poor. You know, I'm like, wait a minute, I'm poor too. I, it's like, wait a minute, you know, I'm broke as fuck too. I don't know what you guys are talking about. I'm trying to get the answer to, um, but this is kind of like a philosophical debate of the fundamental principles of happiness. And, you know, you guys are talking about money makes you happy or, you know, you got to think about it though. It's like, it's like a dopamine rush and that's it. You get tired of it after mm -hmm. a while. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. so. Well, that and you add all you add all that money into the economy, you know, all of a sudden everybody has an extra thousand dollars or fifteen hundred dollars a month. You have to start asking, well, is there going to be inflation? Is this going to put upwards pressure on prices? Is is at some point is are the prices going to go up so much that you're going to cancel out the fact that you're getting I, all I, that money? I asked my friend that too. He hasn't answered yet because we haven't had a chance to reconnect yet. But I. I because we randomly message each other, but we usually get on in video chat. But I said, okay, like at what point, if everybody has, if no matter what, even if you're not working, everybody has at least X amount of dollars a month, no matter what, at some point that money is going to become null and void and meaningless again. So when does that happen? <laughs> when do we get is, to that point? And then it's like, yeah, why are we doing yeah. this? Okay. <laughs> yeah. And it's, um, I think with uh, Joe Rogan and Tim, Tim Pool, I keep saying Tim Cast, Tim Pool, they talk about UBI. And Tim Pool is in favor, not in favor necessarily, he has questions just like us, but Joe Rogan was like, I don't understand UBI because you're going to remove that incentive of people wanting to work, mm -hmm. people wanting to, um, you know, get something or a sense of purpose. Um, and uh, I kind of understand what they're talking about because, you know, I don't, I don't make a lot of money podcasting or anything like that, but it's something I like to do. You know, I like to have a conversation and discussion and it gives me a sense of purpose and happiness. And this is where I get really confused because, um, you know, socialists, for example, they, you know, smash capitalism. But at the same time, they kind of depend on capitalism for them to succeed as socialists because they use Facebook. They use Twitter. They use, you know, all these social mm -hmm. networking sites. And, and that's mm -hmm. capitalism. And that's why the reason why Twitter and Facebook succeed is because of capitalism. And they don't think about stuff like that because they were indoctrinated to to see capitalism as a bad, bad thing. I mean, I'm of course, you know, I'm on Eric Weinstein, um, his position where they. You know, something needs to be done, um, not so, that not necessarily, but slowly, 
gradually because I'm not, I'm, I don't want things to, uh, I think there's going to be kind of like, I think, I think Samson brought it earlier. So, and a new enlightenment has to happen. Mm-hmm. I think that's what that needs to happen. Something, I think the IDW, the intellectual dark web, uh, if you guys don't know that, that's like Dr. Pearson, Ben Shapiro, um, Tim Pool and stuff. They're all in this circle of these different ideas coming together to try to work it out. And I think that's what it is. I don't, I don't necessarily think it's UBI that's going to solve it. I think the reason why a lot of people like Andrew Yang is because he brought in a new fresh game into it. And I think that's going to be like the new left in my personal opinion, but um, an, a new enlightenment, something to give something a new, like a, a birth of new ideas. I think, I think that um, we're at a point where there has to be some constructive way we can better combine good things about the right and the left. Um, I think the the last enlightenment we had going over the past couple hundred years was good, but it was very, the whole point of it was it was very scientific and very factual in a very kind of dry, harsh way. And that was a very important point for human history to kind of go through that threshold. Well, we kind of already had a little bit of that with Rome and Greece, but you know how humans progress. They take a step forward, two steps back. So we had this other really big step forward with the last enlightenment we had, and it was very needed, but it's also, you can go too far with that enlightenment. You can become too rigid and calculating and it actually turns on itself and it becomes inhuman. And so we're here in America, we're here 300 years later, still kind of like, you know, some people are still trying to apply things that way and kind of take being human out of it. Um, I think there has to be some better way we can marry everything. And it's, it's I, especially with economics, like I understand you kind of have to be conservative before you can be liberal because the conservative principles allow for everything else to occur so that you can have the luxury of liberalism. And you can even say that with other parts of lifestyle, being conservative then gives you the opportunity to be liberal, like being society, being very strictly heterosexual forever, finally gave birth to a time where you could be homosexual. So it's like the same thing, but there needs to be more give and take in there somewhere instead of this power struggle. Um, You know, you have liberal people very concerned with, you know, oh, you know, money shouldn't be everything and people should be able to pursue the humanities more and to be an artist, to be a poet and actually have like room and time to pursue that. And I, I agree with that. That's very important. Those are very important parts of being a human being. I don't personally agree that it should just be, oh no, just go to school, you know, you know, get a degree in business so that you can just work 50 hours a week as an accountant because you have to make money because you have to survive. And then you, you just have no time and energy outside of your job to, you know, develop that talent that you had as a kid for playing the guitar or, or, you know what I mean? Like connect with people, do things that are meaningful and passionate in a different way. I do understand the point, like that kind of thinking you get from the left that there, we need to like, st- you know, what's the point of being a human being that, you know, we can create and do all these other interesting things and we can be so compassionate and caring and help other people. So we need something that marries the two, but I just, I, I, Aside from being innovation focused and starting to put our capitalism and business into using technology to improve our quality of life, that's the closest thing I can see to merging that. <laughs> I don't. I don't know. I mean, it's. I, I just keep on. You know, we're we're looking forward about like how things can be, 
And I just can't, in the back of my mind, as I'm hearing you talk, I'm like, you know, there are people out there who believe that in order for us to actually solve for the ills of society, we need to actually burn down everything. Like there, there, there's a philosophical concept that, that kind of goes like this. You can't know the solution to something because it is so bad right now that you literally just need to destroy everything and then seek for the solution because we've been so ingrained in the way that we think and the way that we operate right now that the solution won't present itself until you're forced to actually see it. Um, and, and I'm like, I, I just can't help but get that thought out of my mind. Like we're, we're seeing this around us right now. Like there, there are people who want to see this country burn um, and they believe that we won't actually be able to fix anything until that happens. You know, and, and like all these different things like Andrew Yang, the UBI, even Trump, like he, he they, they all may be working towards that same end goal of destroying our current system, um, whether they realize it or not. Like they, they you know, I, I don't know if Trump is that smart to be like, we need to destroy the system in order to fix it like thoroughly. But that's one of the things like everybody flips out about the wall. My entire life, and I don't mean to, to get us off track, but my entire life, we've been hearing from politicians about how the U.S.-Mexico border is a crisis that needs to be solved. And they use it for political purposes. They use it to get elected. And then once they get where they're trying to be, nothing happens. And then Trump comes along and says, you know what? I'm going to build a wall. I'm going to deport everyone. And... Um, it is, it, it is what it is. Like either you like it or you don't. Um, that's kind of like an example of, well, he may not actually succeed in getting the wall built and he may not deport everyone, which is not something that I advocate for. But we're certainly now at a point where we cannot ignore the issue and it's going to be solved one way or the other. You know, whether that means immigration reform, whether that means building a wall, like whatever it is, it's going to happen. And I think that that's kind of like one of the mindsets we need to take. We need to embrace that in a way and be like, you know, we're, we're not going to take mediocrity. We're not going to accept just kicking the can down the road anymore. We're going to force the government. We're going to force our industries to fix these issues um, or the system's going to just break fundamentally. Mm-hmm. I know that that's a little off from what you guys were talking about, but like, that's just no, no, it, it makes sense. And, and yeah, it makes sense. So I'm going to kind of uh, explain to you guys what Samson and April is trying to say. So to push it back way back into the Cold War period, um, the Cultural Revolution. So I'm going to read what that is. So the Cultural Revolution, formerly the Great Proletarian Cultural Revolution, was a social political movement in China from 1966 until 1976, launched by Mao Zedong, the chairman of the Communist Party of China, the CPC. Um, it said the goal was to preserve Chinese communism by purging remnants of capitalist and traditional elements from Chinese society and to reimpose Mao Zedong thought known outside China as Maoism as the dominant ideology in the CPC. The revolution mark, marked Mao's return to the central position of power in China after a period of less radical leadership to recover from the failures of the Great Leap Forward, which led to approximately 3 million deaths in the Chinese famine only five years earlier. So, so any leftist 
should know that. And this is where I kind of you know, talk about you know, the, 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 the podcast down below this one that I'm going to I'm going to publish. You guys can't just break things down and destroy it. OK, Pol Pot tried to do it. Mao Zedong tried to do it. I don't think Stalin tried to do it. I'm not really sure. But those two were a disaster. So we understand, you know, like right at the moment, the, the protest has happening in Minnesota. We see that. All of us see it. We're not denying it. Okay. People are angry. And so, um, but we, what we're trying to say is be careful uh, when you guys are trying to like burn everything down. It gets really frustrating. Okay. And so, you know, just like, you know, when the Cultural Revolution and the Great Leap Forward, they fucked up. They really did. And they killed a lot of their own people. Pol Pot killed a lot of his own people. And tell you know before he died, he didn't take responsibility for it because you know they tried to remove everything, all our cultures, our tradition, and things like that. I understand, you know, the Christian values because if you guys have to remember that liberalism was influenced a lot about Christianity too. I mean, I accepted that, and liberalism is the oldest political philosophy in comparison to everybody else. And liberalism means you know freedom, right? And so, I blaming this is where peterson comes in right april you're in the group that i was in this is what peterson was talking about taking responsibility i mean who are you to tell other people how to operate when you can't fix your own self or clean your room and this is where activism and stuff come, come comes into play there's some activism that that i really respect so um the protests that's happening in, in minnesota right now um it's it's really bad. Um, so it looks similar to the LA riot, and you know the, the same protest that happened in what Freddie Gray, uh, Michael Brown, um, Rodney King, um, and they're destroying property. Now we can have different opinions on why they're doing that, but but the point that I'm trying to make is is that when you guys just want to burn everything to the quote unquote fucking ground. You're really destroying everybody's life in the process. So the argument that I I hear is because I'm pro Hong Kong. So so you guys don't know this. Um, Hong Kong fell into the CCP's hand, um, and uh, it's unfortunate. Um, I will I will talk about that in another episode and to break down what what's going on in Hong Kong at the moment. So Hong Kong has their own revolution for freedom, and they use a lot of their ideas from you know the the American Revolution: give me liberty or give me death. Life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, or life, liberty, in the original says John Locke, life, liberty, and the pursuit of property. And so that's what the people of Hong Kong are fighting for. Now, in comparison to that, and the, I'm not saying that the people in Minnesota cannot protest. I'm not saying that at all. They're making a point. I understand that. Um, but what's the intention, if that makes sense? Does that make sense, guys? Like, what's your intention? Yeah. yeah. No, no, I get where you're going with this. I mean, I yeah. kind of, it was weird because it's the whole thing has been an event that I understand every player in it and, and I get it, but I'm glad that <laughs> I'm glad that people aren't allowed to just keep going with that. Meaning like what happened um, to Floyd was absolutely unthinkable. It was terrible. So and it wasn't handled correctly right away. And, you know, the protests and the fires, like I understood it. I'm like, that's kind of in a way that's an appropriate response. I don't like it. I don't like the violence. I'm glad. And then I'm glad that it got shut down. I'm glad that we have government to shut that stuff down. So people don't just totally go crazy. But I was equally glad that they were doing it and showing how unacceptable that is. 
I don't care. Some of them were Black Lives Matters people, identitarians. That's fine, whatever. I mean, the whole thing was just so horrible. It was more than race for me. Obviously, it wasn't about race at all for me. So I was very glad that people were that indignant about it, that they demanded something be done right away. I mean, I think that's very powerful. And a lot of people have lost touch in America with doing that, that the government should be scared of the people a little bit. So I think it's great that they achieved that. Like, now I'm really sorry if people got hurt. I haven't done deep dive reading about it. I know there were like people like small business owners, like had their businesses looted and stuff happened. And I really hope insurance covers everything. <laughs> but I understand like the whole purpose of it happening. Like I do get it. But yeah, I mean, within that, there were definitely some actors within it that just I don't know, people get taken over with this rage and this chaos inside of them that they don't even know what they want. They just know that they're unhappy. So they just want to destroy whatever is in front of them. And that's very scary. You know, we don't want we don't want that to become one big voting block. <laughs> and just like you guys talked about earlier, um, this is just the beginning. It's going to get more ugly. Uh, in my personal opinion, the 2020 election that's coming up in November. Um, I'm not looking forward to that. Uh, it's not because I'm, I, I, I don't know, I'm, I'm not gonna make a prediction or anything like that because, um, you know, when it comes to politics, I'm, I'm getting kind of like tired of it and, um, you know, Facebook and stuff. Um, I'm going to be talking to Andrew Cook and we're all friends with Andrew Cook too. So we all know each other. Uh, we're going to talk about the agorism and like, we're going to talk about how Facebook is making, uh, feeding into that, um, with social media, big tech companies are, are, are trying to not trying to, um, they're trying to like persuade certain people to like certain ways. Um, and uh, it's unfortunate uh, that everything is burning to the ground in Minnesota. And so uh, watching that, um, it's pretty disheartening. Um, but um, this, is, this is a question for Samson. So Samson, what do you think about, so we're, I'm pro Hong, Hong Kong and there was a riot in Hong Kong. So what, what's the diff difference between what's going on in Minneapolis and Hong Kong? That. Well, I, you know, I, the first thing that comes to mind is the people of Hong Kong are probably fighting against the government, whereas the people in Minnesota are burning the personal property of uh, private property owners around them. I, I kind of have two thoughts about what's going on in this country right now. First is like, you know, April was part of the reopen protests in Massachusetts. We've been doing this for the past few weeks now. Uh the media was coming out and talking about how we weren't social distancing, we weren't wearing masks, and, you know, all sorts of people are going to get sick and die because of this. And then here we are a few weeks later, and as an organizer, I haven't heard anything about people getting sick, people getting harmed, and I, I would think that I would have at this point. So um, I think about this as a battle between the left and the right. And like I said, I don't like being a part of that battle, but like it or not, like I'm a part of the right because that's what everybody's labeled me as. And so for a while now, the right has been kind of winning some of these ideological battles happening in this country. And I think the left has been looking for an opportunity to take advantage of and to hijack the media that's been going on. And so what happened with Floyd is tragic. And, and the police officer deserves to be prosecuted to the fullest extent of, that the law allows. The media has taken it and has ran with it and turned it into this literal race war. And um, they're highlighting, you know, they're, they're putting a lot of emphasis on, on the divide between black people and white people that, you know, very much exists 
but it's not to the extent that like all white people are racist. And that's, that's kind of what we're seeing when they talk about systemic racism. There's, there being like white, you know, if you're white and you don't acknowledge the fact that this is a race thing, then you're white privileged, you know? And so I think the media, because they're in bed with the leftists or the communists, they're, they're, they wanted to hijack what's going on in the, in the news cycle so that it's less, um, we're not talking about the success of the conservative movement that's been happening in the media because we have been kind of dominating the media with successes lately. And now they've completely dominated the, the news cycle with racism and hatred and all this other stuff. The other thought that I have is that um, there are a lot of people who are out there peacefully protesting and they're bringing up very legitimate things about, you know, uh, racism they're they're bringing up legitimate things and it's being overshadowed by the rioters and the looters and um the more that we focus on the rioting and the looting as being the predominant aspect of what's happening in the united states right now the more we're perpetuating the status quo and we're demeaning the message that these protesters are trying to bring that in certain places um for some reason Black and brown people are being thrown in jail at disproportionate rates. They're being killed by police officers um, in certain areas at a much greater percentage than than other people. And, you know, in in a lot of cases, it's being swept under the rug. We're not going to talk about that as long as we're burning and looting and rioting. And the media, you know, because they're in bed with the status quo, they want to focus on the rioting and looting and the, the property destruction. And it's going to take away, it's going to take away from what we should really be talking about, how we need to unite. No, no matter the color of your skin, we need to unite and we need to push back against corrupt politicians, corrupt government officials, whether elected or unelected. And we need to be pushing back against um, hatred in general and being, you know, uniting with each other. It's not going to happen. Um, as long as we're rioting and looting and the media is focusing on it. That, that's my thoughts on it. Hong Kong, I, I'm not as well versed about uh, as you are going to be, Boone, but they have a legitimate gripe against the government. And I think that they're, they're mainly going to be focused on the government. They're not going to be burning the businesses of their fellow um, citizens. They're going to be going, they're going to be going, you know, somebody brought this up the other day. Um, what is different between the Boston Tea Party oh, and the, the Minnesota uh, riots? Well, the closest thing that the Minnesota came to the Boston Tea Party was when they burned that police station. That's government property. They have a government grievance. And, and I mean, that's that's pretty close. It's, I'm not saying it's a good thing, but, um, you know, burning Foot Locker or the target, <laughs> that's not that's not the Boston Tea Party, you know? Yeah. I, I don't know. We don't have a Jamie. God damn it, I have to do the Jamie. So the Boston, okay, so a lot of people like to compare the Boston Tea Party, and it annoys, okay, I'm going to get Frenchy here. It annoys the fuck out of me, because the Boston Tea Party, there was intention. This is what I was talking about. This is the debate between Sam Harris and Noam Chomsky when they talk about intention. What are you trying to achieve? So you guys don't know this. The Boston Tea Party, um, it was a political group um, uh, by the Sons of Liberty in Boston, Massachusetts. You guys are so lucky to live there. 
I would love to live there. I, I live here in California where the, I love the it. Marxist, yeah, the Marxist grew over here, guys. The, the, you know, Mark Herbert Marcuse and stuff, they're all here where I'm at. So, but, um, so they were, um, let me see. Okay. So it was on December 1773. The target was the Tea Act of May 10th of 1773, which allowed the British East India Company to sell tea from China, China again, and American colonies without paying taxes apart from those imposed by the Townshed Acts. American patriots strongly opposed the taxes in the Townshed Act as violation of their rights. Demonstrators, some disguised as Native Americans, destroyed an entire shipment of tea sent by the East India company so the t act um so basically it's no taxation without representation so compare that to the looters and the rioters okay so the boston tea party they achieved something they gave birth to a nation okay i don't know what what's going and stealing i don't know condoms from fucking targets gonna achieve you guys anything i mean sure you know they're stealing beers they're stealing clothes they're destroying a lot of property Okay, by all means, you guys can. But according to our Constitution, what does it say? A right to a peaceful protest. Is that peaceful for, to you guys? No, of course you it's know? not. I mean, there were a lot of peaceful protesters there, though. So it's like, I have to remember that. Um, unfortunately, whatever they did, it, it got out of control. But I think a lot more people showed up to it than what they were really trying to, than they could really keep track of, right? And because um, of the whole emotional and moral outrage of the whole thing, everybody saw this terrible video. All these people came out. I think there were peaceful people there. You know, I, <laughs> I, it just, it, you know, they also burned down the police station. Maybe that's okay. Maybe it's not okay. Maybe, it, maybe it is okay though to make a point at that. At you know, I, I get what you're saying about Foot Locker. No, and and all the small business owners. What are you doing now? You're just being angry children you're breaking windows and you're just taking sneakers and i get that um you know but it was so not only was the event horrible but it was so badly handled in the following 24 hours maybe maybe doing something to the police station is okay i, I don't know i'm not saying it definitely was but <laughs> that one i'm kind of like mm, maybe i mean you know like they, they sent a pretty good message with that um that it, it was like a you know, someone was murdered in a very terrible, very unacceptable way, and their local authorities weren't reacting to it. So I don't Clear, know. I don't clearly know. people are in pain, and this is generations of pain manifesting itself on the streets. And it's not just Minnesota, it's Atlanta, it's like St. Louis and Detroit, LA, Vegas. This is, um, you know, we can't just be like, we can't just whitewash it and be like, oh, this is just people rioting and looting because they can. Uh, these are people who, who have been, you know, I believe that a lot of people are oppressed in this country still to this day. And we need to address that oppression. And we're seeing, we're seeing people coming out and healing the only way that they can, the only way that they know how, and that's by throwing firebombs and breaking into places. And on some level, I feel like, you know, and I'm not justifying it, but some of these people might feel slightly better by going into target and stealing a bunch of stuff because they can, it's like, this is compensating for something that they've been missing out on for a long time. And unfortunately the left has been telling them that it's the right who's been oppressing them. It's the white people in general who's been oppressing them. And it's it's furthering this divide um, that's that's 
it's just terrible. And, you know, I, I, I know nothing about it because um, even though I'm not a member of the ruling class and I don't have a ton of money, um, I still don't know exactly what it's like to grow up in Detroit or in Minneapolis or whatever. I do. I was like, I do. Right. I do. <laughs> it's like, I do. I raise my hand. I'm like I do because is the, so like I, I grew up eating government cheese. I grew up on welfare. I grew up, um, if you, I, I don't know if you guys both know this, but I got shot at when I was little. Uh, a bu- the, the bullet missed me by, you know, an inch. And my dad was one who saved me. So I don't know if you guys know that, but I grew up around that. And um, I still do live in this particular, I don't live in the the, the area that I was born into. But um, I'm going to say this is going to be kind of controversial. I'm probably going to get kind of hated upon it, but it's all choices, guys. So I grew up around gangs. And I don't know if you guys, uh, uh, my audience, if you guys know this, but I grew around the TRGs and the ABZ. So the, the Tiny Rascal Gang was all Khmer um, people. And the Asian boys were all like the Laos and stuff like that. So we brought our beef in South America, in Southeast Asia or in shit in the Indochina War and brought it into the United States of America. So um, I grew up around gangs, but I didn't came out like that. I And it... it, it I'm curious of why I didn't I didn't get into that lifestyle, but I, I know why. It's because I grew up a lot different. I got beat up a lot. I didn't get beat up a lot. I, I kind of didn't get beat up because I did their homework, and that's my way of kind of, you know, negotiating with the gangs. So I did homeworks for, like, the Mexican gangs, too, and I did homework for the Asian gangs. So it kind of, you know, hold my ground. And the thing that kind of saved me from that living that particular area is my mom and dad. And so they kind of, you know, taught us about choices, okay? And Thomas Sowell made an interesting argument. He said, don't confuse the hooligans with the poor people. And this is why a lot of people on the left kind of confuse a little bit because they think the people who are rioting and the thugs and stuff like that, they're fucking thugs. They're not the people that's getting hurt, the poor people, the marginalized people, because you guys keep putting us together in one. And this is where a lot of what I call the Bolshevik Boragi, the people who are middle, upper middle class white people, and you see this a lot of uh, quote unquote Antifa, and you see this a lot in Boston, Massachusetts. I can't wait to go to Boston, Massachusetts, and just and be like, idiots! Don't the hammer and sickle is going to kill you first because you guys are the Boragi. You know they don't. This is where what happens when you don't educate yourself in communist history. And so I grew up around poverty, but I didn't make choices, and I don't have. You know, a lot of people, they think, oh, well, you know, Boone cuss a lot. But uh, to be honest with you, I'm pretty conservative how I look. You know, I, I don't have tattoos. I don't have piercings. I don't, you know, it's okay, April. I know you color your hair blue, but I don't have like crazy hairdo <laughs> or anything. I don't have crazy hair. I, I look like a conservative woman, right? But the moment that I open my mouth is a little bit different. Um, and it's choices. You got to think about choices and how you're raised. And the thing that, that I think, you know, that made me who I am today, it's my parents. And the fact that they, you know, gave me, they, they debated a lot. So in Khmer language, it's a lot different than American language. And it kind of taught me philosophy and it encouraged me to think on my own. And that led to that, that freedom of expression that uh, my parents, you know, are so grateful that they have. Because in a, in a Marxist agrarian utopia, they didn't have that. They had Angkor to guide everything that they're doing, their activities, the way they think, the way, what they eat, what, how they dress. So, you know, with freedom of expression, we have that. And this is why, you know, I don't, I don't understand why people compare the Boston Tea Party and Minneapolis, you know, I don't get it because I, I see it and I, I, I can't really kind of 
they're doing kind of the same thing, but they're not. And so this is where, you know, they're making the argument that, oh, the reason why they're writing is because they're poor. Bullshit. I call bullshit because I live in a poverty stricken area of the Central Valley. It's a very farming area. And I call bullshit because the, the, the people that I live around with are Mexican immigrants. Okay. I work alongside Mexican immigrants. I work alongside blacks. I work alongside poor whites and stuff like that. This is where I think intersectionality, and this is another topic that I'm going to get into, where it really screws up a person from reality. Because to me, intersectionality is more of a, subject, a subjective reality than an objective reality, if that makes sense. You know, they don't, when they come across me, they're like, oh, there's somebody that's, you know, against us. We're protecting you. You you be quiet. You know, they, they seem to be fighting for people like me. But then when it comes to it, you know, I don't know, like CNN, for example, that, you know, the people destroyed their headquarters in Atlanta, Georgia. You know, they're watching black people destroy their stuff. And uh, I don't know if you guys know this, but uh, one of the person from CNN was doing like a live um he was like, you know, talking about like the rioters and looters and he got shot with a BB gun. And he was like, what the, you know, it was like, yep, those are the people that you're protecting and they're going up against you. And I remember watching and, and these rioters and looters were just like flipping them off. And that's the most liked video on CNN, CNN's YouTube. So I don't know, you know, they don't live in reality. You know, it's, it's just class warfare that we're seeing at the moment. And it exists. We understand that we have three people from different classes of status talking to each other on this podcast right now. That's the fucking beauty of American politics. <laughs> That's the beauty of our constitution, man. And this is where uh, you know, it's like, and you guys grew up in Massachusetts. If you guys don't know Massachusetts, I, I'm jelly of, uh, jealous of these guys because it's so beautiful. And I like, I want to go, but when the hammer and sickle gets pops out and the rally and shit, you're like, what the, I don't want to go there, but it's just like such a beautiful state. And I think it's like one of the 13 colonies, right? Massachusetts, if I'm correct. Yeah, it would have yeah, been one of them. It would have been one of them because it was the original. I forget what the original 13 were all together, but. Yeah, and it's like history. It's That's the beauty of America. And my cousins and stuff, they're like, we don't understand why Americans like to swing their balls around. I go, there's a reason. It's called the Bill of Rights, bitches. All right, that's why we have that. And you guys better be jealous because it's just like. The oppression and stuff like that, what they say, I don't see the America that they're talking about coming from mm -hmm. a person who grew up in poverty. You so, know, it's that. I think that, like, one of the really uncomfortable things that people dance around here, because I get what you're saying and I get what Samson said with the whole no, with, I mean, okay, these cities we're seeing that riot, the riot springs up when something happens. There's been a lot of suffering behind it. Um, there's been a lot of instances of, police not handling things very well but I don't think we properly tackle some of the hard questions like why more crime comes out of certain communities than others um you know I can tell you I think it was seven let me do the math in my head I think it was maybe seven eight years ago now I had like you know a friend really get into this with me where he you know I'd like to think that I grew up a little bit red-pilled because the way my dad is but, you know, I kind of had like some different layers of red pilling coming in later on. Right. And I had a friend really get into me with the whole racial stuff. And, you know, he was that first person to kind of like make me look at the FBI statistics and all the crime statistics and, you know, the numbers, the demographics that live in this country. And 
you know, the fact that black people are still committing more crimes. So, so, you know, per capita, you know, it's like people talk about how white people are getting shot more, but there are more white people than black people. So I'm not always, you know, I've looked at that before. I'm not sure that more white people are getting killed per capita than black people. I'm not sure about that. Um, but more black people are committing crimes than white people. So you're going to end up in a, unfortunately, that's going to beget situations where you're going to have more run-ins with the police. If you have more run-ins with the police, it increases the likelihood you're going to have a run-in with a bad cop at some point. Um, so you're going to hear more of this stuff coming, you know, happening to black people. Unfortunately, now sometimes the cops are going to be white, not always. Some of them are white. There's plenty of, you know, Hispanic, Latin black cops out there you know but the news again latches on to when it's when it's a white cop but um you know I get I guess it's just there's still something that's intellectually dishonest about what's happening um it's it gets into a very hard conversation to have because then I asked well okay but if black people are in poverty then obviously they're going to commit more crimes but then he showed me statistics of how many white people are living in poverty (laughs) the statistics of how many white people are on welfare and that was something I, I hadn't seen all of that at once in my face before. It was about eight years or so ago. So I don't know what the answer is to that. I mean, I, I, we don't know why. Um, well, I mean, I think, of, I, for example, in Latin America, yeah. right? Mm-hmm. We fund, just, we train, I, I, I and we equip the governments the of Latin America to fight the war on drugs on our behalf, right? Those governments down there it's aren't necessarily virtual. Can you hear each other? You're both talking. I can't hear Boone. No, I don't hear him. Okay. I can hear you both, but you can't hear uh, each other. Okay. Oh, <laughs> we're saying really good things. <laughs> <laughs> you know what's going to happen? Okay. So I'm going to cut this now. <laughs> <laughs> you can tell Samson that I'm going to cut this right now. There was a recon- a connection service. So I'm going to c- try to catch it. So uh, I'm going to end this conversation and we're going to continue this again in part two, if that's okay with you guys. Okay. Okay. All right. So I'm going to end this and uh, stay on the thing. And as always guys stay far out. Bye.